Gary Paling, and I'm here to interview Dr. Greg Bain as a giant in orthopedic surgery. Greg took his medical school in orthopedic training at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. He completed a hand and upper limb uh, fellowship with professors James Roth, Graham King, and Bob McFarlane in London, Ontario, Canada. He was an Isikos traveling fellow from Asia Pacific region where he traveled to Europe and the ESCA meeting. In 2008, he received his PhD on wrist anatomy and arthroscopy. In 2014, he became professor of the upper limb surgery and research at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Greg was deputy chair of the upper limb committee, then became the first chair of the elbow, wrist, and hand committee of Isikos. He was also a godfather to Isikos. In addition to that, he's been president of the International Wrist Arthroscopy Society, Asian Pacific Wrist Association, and Australia Shoulder and Elbow Society. As his CV attests, Greg has been a lecturer all over the world. He has authored hundreds of scientific peer-reviewed articles, and uh, as well as book chapters and books. I might ask Greg to share with us uh, now that he did his fellowship. Uh, what influence did that fellowship in London, Ontario, Canada do for him? Gary, thank you. Uh, firstly, like to thank Isakos and the uh, Archives Committee for giving me this privilege, but more importantly, to be able to possibly share some of, of my story and hopefully others can get some benefit from that. Uh, so in 1993, I was fortunate enough to go to the hand and upper limb unit uh, in London, Ontario. Jim Roth was the boss there, and it, it was a profound change for me. It completely changed my perspective and, and my career. The hand and upper limb unit was uh, very progressive. It, it only just started. It had only been going for two years, and I was the first of any of the international fellows. It was a very vibrant uh, centre. Uh, the quality of the surgical work I, I thought was exceptional. We were doing a lot of research and 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 we were a great team, I think, as, as a whole group. So I felt very privileged to be there. Uh, Jim Roth is, is a unique person in hand surgery, uh, sports medicine and arthroscopy. Uh, Jim's one of the pioneers of arthroscopy of the wrist in particular. And there's an important story that, in fact, if you listen to the giants of Gary Paling, you will see Gary describe uh, an important meeting in 1985 where Gary and Terry Whipple and Jim Roth got together and they formulated how they might uh, develop the concept of wrist arthroscopy. And the reason this was important, as I understand, is that because knee surgery had a lot of difficulty starting because a lot of the, the grandfathers of knee surgery uh, basically thought that we shouldn't be doing arthroscopy. And so uh, so Gary, Terry and Jim were very instrumental in developing that. So what I think is really interesting looking back at that was, you know, their sort of natural leadership, but but also that looking at some of the videos and things that I've seen that Terry Whipple put together, the fundamentals of wrist arthroscopy really haven't changed much since 1985. 
And uh, so I think it's a very solid grounding that these three uh, three gentlemen put together for us. So very grateful for for all for all three of the people who contributed there. But my my uh, position was I was very fortunate work with Jim Roth. So in when I was in London, it was really more about the whole department that he'd created. It wasn't just about wrist arthroscopy, and so uh, it w- it was a great place to be. Jim himself was, I thought, an exceptional arthroscopic and open surgeon uh, and an exceptional leader in the group. The other person that needs acknowledgement there is is Graham King. Graham King, uh, at the time, I was the best elbow surgeon in uh, in Canada, and there's no doubt that he's one of the very best elbow surgeons in the world. So he had developed the uh, evolved radial head and the latitude elbow replacement. So I was most fortunate to work with him and with his uh, biomechanical engineers and, and to learn from him. So after spending a year with uh, Graham and Jim Roth, I remember coming home to Adelaide and uh, from Graham, I'd learned all the concepts of elbow anatomy, elbow surgical approaches and how to stabilise an elbow. And the reason this was so important was I was never really scared of doing elbow surgery. Uh, A lot of my colleagues would always be very nervous about complex elbows. and It was something actually I I found I really enjoyed it. So I'm I'm very grateful to Graham uh, and Stuart Patterson for, for that opportunity. The other person that was really quite special was Bob McFarlane. Bob McFarlane was a former president of the IFSSH, which is International Hand Group, and he was uh, um, a leader, a world leader in Jupitron's contracture. And I remember one Friday morning walking into his operating theatre and there was the patient, a nurse, and Dr McFarlane. And Dr McFarlane was injecting lignocaine and adrenaline into the fingers. And we were always taught you should never put adrenaline into the fingers. And here, this great man's doing it. And I'm really quite confused. I'm thinking, what is going on here? Because it just didn't seem to be right. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough to realise, of course, if the great man was doing something like that, then it's it's probably the right thing to do. And, of course, some years later, Don Lalonde developed the whole concept of violent uh, surgery, which is wide awake without a tourniquet. And this is what uh, McFarlane was doing back in 1993. Uh, if I was a little bit smarter, then I probably would be spreading the word of Wyland around the world. But unfortunately, um, we're, we're just talking about other things. But but that was one of the, the things that, that I sort of learned and had an opportunity. So um, having spent a year in the unit, uh, which was fantastic, I then spent uh, about two months just driving around parts of the United States I visited um, uh, uh, Dr. Richards, uh, Robin Richards in Toronto. I visited Terry Whipple, went to Mayo Clinic, I went to Duke University, and uh, I also visited Lee Osterman. Now, Lee Osterman was very important for me because Lee Osterman had two um, physician's assistants that were working with him at the time, and I can remember we would meet on the ward at 8 in the morning and then these two physician assistants would come in and one would say, I've spoken to the fellow about the research and that's all sorted. And the other one said, uh, I've seen the patients, they're all good, they're going home. And I couldn't help but think that was the most efficient practice I'd ever seen. So I, I came home to, to Adelaide and I set up a physician's assistant concept in Adelaide, in Australia. So that was the first time that was ever done. But that added a lot to my practice. And Ron Heptonstall, who took on that role, did an exceptional job. And I actually owe him quite a lot as well. Uh, He was great at photography and video and and all sorts of other things that added to my practice. 
The other important point of the learning that I was able to bring home was having seen, I thought that I added a lot to the hand and upper limb unit, but also that uh, that I learned so much. So when I got home as a, as a young surgeon, the age of 34, I think I was, I went and saw the director of the hospital and I said, I want to set up a, a fellowship program. And, and we started that. So since 1995, we've had fellows in my practice all the way through and they have, they've added a huge amount. And so over the years, there's some people that are well known now, Adam Watts, uh, Roger Van Reet, um, Jonathan Evans is going to become well known as well, I think, uh, and uh, Matthias Zumstein. So these people, uh, Joy Deep Fadness, have, have all been fellows who are now making a significant contribution. So I'm very proud that uh, what I've learned from Jim Roth and his group, I was able to pass on to my own practice and then on to the next generation. And that's that's a very satisfying thing. And in some regards, that's probably my greatest legacy to be able to have done that. Now, the, the final thing I just want to say about the hand and upper limb unit was about uh, 15 years after um, I was there, we went back with the family and I wanted to give Jim Roth a special present so in Adelaide, a surgeon by the name of Randall Sash used to gla uh, blow glass and he got two hands and put them together as if they're shaking. One was, a, I think, a black hand, one was a blue hand and the different colours. And so I thought this was so symbolic. So I, I got it framed and I gave it to Jim Roth and the inscription on it was, thank you for the world-class training from the fellows of the world. And so there was a, a few messages in this, obviously, you know, thank you for it all. But it was also, it wasn't just about Jim Roth. It was about the whole department, which, which he'd actually created. And it wasn't actually about me. It was about what all the fellows that we all got from it. So uh, Jim Roth died at the age of 62. I understand he died in his sleep. Uh, he's actually died at the same age that I am now. And on his uh, coffin, they put the hands there. Uh, as a symbol of of what he had contributed. So I always thought that was pretty special. But all around, I think it was a great uh, opportunity for me to be there. Well, Greg, it's really great to hear. Uh, you know, I've always admired uh, Jim Roth in particular because I've known him the very best. And uh, to hear the stories that you had uh, is really very meaningful. <laughs> now, moving on, um, why don't you share with us uh, your fellowship uh, that you had in uh, in Europe and uh, how that has uh, changed or how you uh, leverage that as far as uh, new ideas? So that, that's an interesting question. And I, I look back at the traveling fellowship time through Europe as, as one of the best times in my, my entire career. Um, Barry Tischens was our uh, godfather. Uh, Barry was the ultimate uh, international relations guy, president of ISACOS. But wherever we went, we we're always welcome because of, of, of his international leadership. And uh, when he spoke and to, you know, welcomed us and when he was you know, at the meetings there and, and presenting, uh, his, his style of leadership at international level, I, I thought was very impressive. Um, the other person who we were with was was Mark Clatworthy, and Mark's become a good friend. And Mark's, as you know, he's he's a true leader also now in Isacos. But but we were young guys back then, and uh, you know we were both trying to learn. And I remember we would be in the back of the operating theatre, 
and there'd be one of the the legends of um, European sports medicine doing the surgery. And then Barry would say, I don't think that ACL is in the right spot. And it happened quite a few times. And so Mark and I would chat about it. Now, I'm not a knee guy, so I'm an upper limb surgeon. So I'd always say, Mark, where do you think it should be? And it's it'd say, oh, maybe a little bit more this way, maybe a little bit more that way. So, so we really had a good time uh, together uh, being able to travel. Eddie Mustamse from Indonesia was also with us. And, and I think he went back and actually probably contributed the most at the time, I think there was one orthopedic surgeon per, I think, like 10 million people in the country. So I expect Eddie might have actually got the most out of the Travelling Fellowship. But um, it was at so many levels, the, the friendships that we we developed, and the one that stands out to me most is is Mark Saffron, uh, former president of Isacos. But, but Mark and I, uh, we spent quite a bit of time together in the Travelling Fellowship because the Asian and the, uh, the American group came together at the Magellan Society and then at ESCA. And I really enjoyed uh, spending time with Mark and you know, we exchanged a lot of ideas and we've become, I think, lifelong friends. Um, Mark, I think, is an exceptional person. Uh, when he was president of Isacos, I, I thought that the way he managed that was fantastic at, at what was actually a difficult time uh, and his leadership in that area is is very special. There, there are a couple of other people that were important during that time uh, Ina Eriksson, who was the godfather of sports medicine in Europe, uh, I sp spent many hours talking to him during the Travelling Fellowship. We were, I remember just we would be somewhere, we'd just be sitting down having a coffee, and uh, he would be telling me about some of the stories. And the one that stood out the most and it was most important was about dry arthroscopy. And so dry arthroscopy can either be done by putting the scope in and just let atmospheric pressure calm down, or you can inflate the joint or insufflate the joint with carbon dioxide. <clears throat> so when I went back home to Adelaide, I, I tried this. I did it on the wrist, and I really wasn't that impressed that it made a difference. And then literally five or eight years later, Paco Pinal from Spain, a very famous wrist arthroscopy surgeon, started talking about dry arthroscopy, and I actually stood up at a meeting. I said, I, I really don't think there's much in this. But uh, Paco was right, and so was Ina Erickson, that uh, dry arthroscopy adds a lot. The, uh, there's a few things that people don't quite understand. When you're looking inside the joint, if it's dry, what happens is the synovial fluid on the articular surface gives you a water-air interface. So then that tends to reflect. It's a little bit like when you're outside near the ocean, you see all the reflection of the water, and it gives you a, a different depth of field it gives you a different understanding of the joint surfaces. And I think this is really important. Obviously, you'll have less swelling, but it changes uh, the, um, the the appearance of the joint. It's certainly better for photography. But things like small blood vessels, they don't get closed down by the, the pressure of the water. At atmospheric pressure, they just are like you're doing an open surgery. So you really do get a better understanding of the uh, the synovitis, the inflammation, uh, and even the ligaments. To be able to see them, you get a better understanding of that. So I really think dry arthroscopy is a good thing. So my contribution here in the literature is we described it in the elbow. We published that some years ago with the uh, joint fatness, but uh, it's also useful in the shoulder. So we're doing it in the shoulder, but we wouldn't. We've planned not to do it under pressure in the shoulder because we're concerned there may ultimately be a risk of air embolus. 
But having said that, there are studies of over 3,000 cases in the knee without complications. So it, it probably is safe, but I think further work needs to be done on that. The other person that I just want to mention is uh, Nick Van Dyke. Um, I remember being in Amsterdam and he was doing ankle arthroscopy and endoscopy. And he put the scope into the FHL sheath and he just moved it a bit and he was in the ankle and he moved it a bit and he's in the subtalar joint. It was unbelievable. And it really was amazing to see what, what he could do with uh, the scope around the ankle. And I went home again to Adelaide and I thought, wait, maybe we can use endoscopy in the elbow. So I endoscopy for ulnar nerve release had already been described, but we developed some new techniques of that. We described for the first time biceps endoscopy and olecranon bursa uh, endoscopy as well. So for the olecranon, you might think, well, who really cares? But it means you don't have a big cut down the back of it so that the healing's better, particularly in the rheumatoid group. And for the biceps, enables you to see completely where that is. One of the interesting things about the extension of this information is Deepak Bhatia from India has taken some of these concepts on the biceps endoscopy and developed a whole uh, system of being able to do it in the same way as we might do knee arthroscopy with multiple portals coming in. When I did it, it was like a mini open and just using retractors. But when he's done it, it's, it's a true endoscopic or arthroscopic technique. So it's really nice to see that be advanced. He's also presented that it is a cost. In fact, won the Gary Paling Award for the best presentation a, a few years ago. So the whole experience was really an amazing thing, the Travelling Fellowship. I thought it was so important that when I came home and I became president of the Shoulder and Elbow Society, I set up the Travelling Fellowship there and I pushed it with the Asia-Pacific Wrist and the Australian Hand Society. So I have a very strong involvement with three fellowships at the moment from an administrative point of view. And then the final thing to say about the Travelling Fellowship was we ate in palaces. We had the most amazing meals. It was, it was just endless. It was just wonderful in every experience. Um, but I remember coming home, sitting down with my three children, and we sat down on the Mickey Mouse table and we had hot dogs <laughs> And a, and a glass of Coke or something with my three little children. It was actually the best meal that, that I had the whole time was being with them. But it uh, it, it was an amazing experience, uh, the Travelling Fellowship and something. The other thing is that what's a great thing about these Travelling Fellowships, the Travelling Fellows remain loyal to society. You know, Mark Saffron becomes president. And I would get involved with the Shoulder and Elbow Society and maybe the, the, um, the journal and things. So there's... All the fellows contribute, Mark Clatworthy, uh, scientific convener, they all become lifetime committed to, to the organisation. I think it's a great thing that we're doing with the Travelling Fellowship. Well, um, I, I certainly agree with you. And um, the, the important thing is that you make uh, uh, touches and you see people that are doing things different than all of the people that are around you. And uh, they look at it in a different way, and uh, like um, like looking in the ankle, and suddenly you're looking in the elbow because they were looking in the ankle. So uh, that's really wonderful. I'd like to <clears throat> change the direction just a little bit. And um, as I am very interested, first of all, in the wrist, 
And um, carpal instability has always been a very big problem in that. And I know that you have some really good ideas and uh, about carpal instability. So uh, th there's many aspects to that. So the first one is, is with the arthroscopy to be able to have an understanding of of the anatomy and and the pathoanatomy. So you know anatomy's the basic science that we all use for surgery and, and pathoanatomy, we need to understand that to be able to have a chance to, to solve these problems. Um, so arthroscopy was important because we we're able to see the ligaments and be able to put probes in and test it. And then we started doing things like Watson's instability test under arthroscopy, stressing the DRUJ, and then sometimes we'd stress the DRUJ and we would see... Um, a tear of the TFC that would just open when you were just stressing it, but you didn't see it normally. And so these type of things I think were really important. My interest in uh, carpal instability extended, and I want to acknowledge the engineers at Flinders University. We developed, uh, or they developed the hexapod, which is effectively like a flight simulator. And we we're able to put the wrist in there and show in, as it went through different ranges of motion, how different parts of the carpus moved. And this gave us objective measures of different aspects of the wrist. And I really felt like we, we increased our understanding of that. I developed uh, some surgical techniques of uh, reconstruction and you know, we were pretty happy with that. Um, but I think the biggest change in recent times is to be able to use the 4D CT scan. So 4D CT scan is a, a CT scan as we know it, but we're able to move the wrist backwards and forwards, and then we can see basically effectively it's like real time where the scaphoid is or where the lunate is in our patient, not in a cadaver in a machine, but in our patient. And this has been really important. So we've been able to... Uh, we've got a girl that's just recently finished a PhD, Melanie Amasara from Sri Lanka, and she's done an amazing job. We've got all these graphs showing where it's where the scaphoid goes and where the lunate goes. And so what we've been able to see is that with, for example, scaphoid instability, there's really like about four or five types. So there's the one that just opens a course. There's other ones where the scaphoid is subluxating out the back. And there's other cases where the lunate is now translocating in an ulnar and volar direction. They're actually much more complex, and that, that's where we're directing our research at the moment to be able to quantify that. But also we realise now that those patients often get this volar uh, ulnar facet um, degenerative osteoarthritis, which is something I'd seen in the past, but I, I could never work it out. So that they are volar ligament injuries associated with scaphoid instability that get that type of instability. So, and the other thing that's changed here, Christoph Mathelin um, basically has taught us about simple plications in the dorsal capsule. And so it's a little bit more like a arthroscopic bank cut repairs in a way, um, so that we're able to minimize all these big open approaches and we published a paper about a year ago in the Journal of Hand Surgery where we looked at the complications of uh, scaphalunic ligament reconstruction using tendon grafts. And in fact, what I learned on my traveling fellowship where we're talking about tunnel widening, how the ligament doesn't heal to the endosteal bone uh, and it only heals at the periosteum, these things, of course, also occur in the, in the scaphoid and the lunate. So we're able to put that together as a concept 
So really pleased to learn all those knee concepts and be able to take them to the wrist. So I think carpal instability is actually evolving very quickly right now as we're changing our understanding with 4D and we're becoming more minimally invasive with our surgery. I, th I think that helps a lot, particularly for the sportsman and, and the, the active person. All right. Well, well, that's great because that's been a pretty much unsolved problem for a long time. And, um, and it's good to hear that we're making progress as far as that's concerned. Another area, uh, uh, getting out of the rest now for a minute anyway, I know that you've had some advanced surgical training uh, methods that you have um, been uh, uh, attempting to do and to show people how to do uh, rotator cuff repairs and that sort of thing. Can you share with us a little bit about that? So, so this this is an exciting development uh, that I've, I've been working with a company in Adelaide called FuseTech. And FuseTech uh, make these uh, mod surgical models, and it's a mixture of technologies to be able to, to get it right. But effectively, they've made a model, say, for the wrist or for the shoulder. They've, they've got a knee one as well. And But um, what they've been able to do uh, is make it so that you can use it in a in a surgical training environment. So it's been fantastic for the trainees to be able to learn how to do a diagnostic shoulder arthroscopy, to be able to then proceed to doing an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, even a latter and an, a shoulder arthroplasty. So, so what's really nice here is that the junior surgeon can learn this in a non-threatening environment. We can have the model in the you know in the in the clinic. We can have it out at dinner or down at your beach house or wherever you want. You don't have to be in a cadaveric lab and you're not worried about the viruses and, and other aspects of the cadaveric material. So it enables the, the student or the, the junior surgeon to be able to learn this and without threatening uh, the patient. But also, you know, as we know in, in surgery, we're always worried about making sure that we're time efficient. So the surgeon, the young surgeon can take their time and just practice and evolve and it's got to the point now you can buy a uh, arthroscopic kit from uh, from China. So for a shoulder scope, I think you can get it for something like twelve hundred American dollars, and buy the model. So now some of our surgeons are actually practicing this at home, so they can practice how to do rotator cuff repairs at home with some anchors provided by one of the companies. So so that's been been great. The next thing is though that that I'm really excited about as well. In, in my own practice, there are some things like when we're doing arthroscopic uh, fixation of scaphoid fractures, I always struggle with that a little bit. So I've been able to practice that in this model. So the model has a distal radius fracture built in. It has a scaphoid fracture built in and scaphoid stability. So I can practice the advanced concepts of arthroscopic reconstruction of the wrist in my time, whenever I wish to. But where I'd like to take it is that we have the next model, which is a perilunate dislocation, and we have the senior surgeons from around the world all operating on this perilunate dislocation and putting it back together. And then I learn from you and Terry and all these other people, Christoph, we all learn from each other how to do it because we're all doing the same model. And then the other thing I realised with shoulder arthroplasty is a lot of the different training, um, a lot of the different navigation systems, they, they're quite complex to learn. And uh, whenever we're doing in, in our operating theatre, 
you know, like to, to let the junior guy learn how to do it, always feel a little bit concerned about the amount of time that that's spending. So the idea that they learn that in like a classroom environment by the people who are best to teach them, which is probably the company representative, and they teach them how to use this program, something like Materialize or one of the equivalents. Then they do the arthroplasty on the shoulder. We have a normal shoulder, and we also have one with a 20-degree retroverted uh, glenoid. So then you learn how to develop the uh, the surgical model for the retroverted glenoid and then do that arthroplasty as well. So by the time you've been there for three or four hours, you're comfortable because you've done two uh, cases where you've done a, a full planning and then you've also done the surgery. So I think that this will revolutionise surgical training. Uh, the fact that we can do it in, in any environment and uh, without need to uh, have the cadavers there. So I think it's going to be a great thing. It's a it's a very interesting uh, advance, and um, you know, <clears throat> it is uh, certainly I agree with you uh, that the more we can simulate things outside of the operating room and make them realistic um, is really great. Uh, are there any uh, final things that you would like to talk about as far as futuristic things uh, that um, that you're thinking about? Well, the first thing I want to just cover is I just want to make a comment a bit more about the biceps tendon because I think we've okay. made some significant contributions there. So we developed uh, the first thing we did was the endo button technique. And, and that became pretty popular. I think many surgeons around the world were developing, were, were using the endo button and other, and some other groups developed similar things. Uh, some of those were commercially related. We then developed the concept of endoscopy and we did a study on the anatomy of the distal biceps tendon and that, that got published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. And what we postulated was that the biceps tendon goes down basically as two tendons, although they're, they're loosely held together, and they go into the radial tuberosity, and, and one part would be more of a flexor, one part would be more of a, a supinator. So when we did all this, this work, uh, we realised that when we were putting the endo button in with this biceps tendon attaching to the anterior aspect of the uh, radial tuberosity, it's not in the anatomical position. And so... And some other groups, um, including Schmidt and others and, and Tanner, had developed concepts that uh, this this was an important aspect as well, that, that we weren't doing quite the right thing. So we developed a, what I call the footprint technique, which develops uh, basically endoscopically debriding uh, the native footprint. And then by placing needles through the radius, using like as a suture shuttle, we were able to advance that and put it into position. And so... We've, and then the final thing was we did a biomechanical study and we proved that the supination and flexion strength was greater with this footprint technique. So I'm really quite pleased that that whole uh, thesis of work going right from the basic stuff in anatomy all the way through to clinical outcomes, I think that's an important contribution. When I sort of go to meetings, most people aren't aware of that biomechanical work, but I think it ties the whole thing together. Uh, as to, to, to how it all works. So with regard to futuristic things, 
Um, with our 4D CT scan work, um, the way that we're doing that now, and we're trying to hopefully get to the point where we can have better computer programs so that we can match at the time of surgery, we're able to, uh, sorry, before surgery, we're able to identify where the carpus is going or scaphoid or lunate or other joints are going, and then to be able to use that to help diagnose. So, for example, if the scaphoid and lunate do that, or the scaphoid and lunate ligament's gone, but if the lunate's going off to one other side, maybe the long radiolunate ligament's torn. So I'm using the computer program to help us define exactly the pathoanatomy and then help uh, use that to translate into the surgical process. So I, I really think that things are continuing to change and evolve. Um, and I, I think that we're all, one thing that Isacost does well, it enables us to, to sit and talk together and interact together. And um, it's it's really wonderful to be involved with this Giants program. And, and Gary, thank you for your leadership and, and mentorship over many years. I really appreciate that. All right. Thank you very much, Craig. This has been a, a fabulous uh, uh, interaction uh, for, for me. It's been really wonderful. And, um, and, and it just shows how important it is that uh, you have really um, not only traveled around the world, but taken things from many places and and put them to to good use and and for the benefit of all of orthopedics. And I want to thank you for it and um, and thank Isikos for providing this program for us. Thank you very much, Gary. A great privilege to be involved, and look forward to seeing you soon, Gary. All right. Bye now. Bye.